0: This morning, we are going to jump ahead. As you know, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, we've, we're in the middle of chapter 6. We're going to jump ahead to chapter 12. Uh, the verses in your worship guide, if you've looked, I'm going to actually extend. We're going to look at verses 1, almost all the way through 26. So a lot of verses. We're going to skip just a couple in there. Um, and, and you have to know the background of what's happening in John 12. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 11, raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Lazarus had died. His uh, sisters are Martha and Mary. Uh, they had sent for Jesus, but he passed away four days. And then they, Jesus comes, and they are both separately greeting him and upset that he's late. But he lets them know what he's going to do, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, at the very beginning of chapter 11... John lets us know it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. So he's, he's letting us know in chapter 11 who Mary is. Here in chapter 12, he's going to explain that story, and it's going to lead into why we celebrate Palm Sunday. Okay? So if you will read along with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard, excuse me, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. And listen to his answer. It doesn't really quite match their question, but listen to these words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat Falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, in this passage, is a secret that many of us understand in our mind. But Lord, it's very difficult, if it's really even impossible without the work of your Spirit to grasp it in our heart. So, as we move toward this week, this holy week, celebrating, as we do really every Sunday all year, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, your lordship over our life, I pray that we would grasp the reality of this passage that the gospel is completely backwards from what we understand in this world. Help us love you. Help us seek you. Amen. This passage, really, and the reason we included those verses at the end, set up a framework for what the Christian life looks like. It really is upside down. It's backwards. It's, you might even say, counterintuitive. So, it's been a while. i want to start with a lighthearted, a light-hearted illustration from Seinfeld. Um, and I'm realizing, I asked my son, Grayson, I said, does anyone in your group understand Seinfeld? And I don't know that you do, so I'm sorry. So let me, let me paraphrase what's happening in, the, in Seinfeld. I don't recommend it. I'm not suggesting you start watching the show. If you've made it this far without watching it, you're fine. But uh, there's a character named George who's really just kind of a scoundrel. And he's always down and out. He lives with his parents off and on. Uh, but somewhere in the middle of the season, of the whole series, he shifts. And he actually becomes kind of successful. And he starts having like, actual girlfriends and lives in his own apartment. Well, here's what happens the shift starts with the, he's at a cafe and he's just had it. And he's basically complaining that life isn't working. And he decides he's going to do everything different, he's going to do the opposite. A waitress walks up, sees him. She says, tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee, which he's always ordered. Yeah, no, no, he says, wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked for me when I order tuna on toast. I want the complete opposite. Chicken salad, on rye, untoasted, and a cup of tea. And Elaine's like, George, see that woman over there? She just looked at you camera pans over, and there's a woman at the bar, kind of attractive, looking back at George. He says, so what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. He says, Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents don't approach strange women. Seinfeld kind of reminds him of this opposite thing he's supposed to be doing. And he, find, he says, fine, I'll go do it. I'll be the opposite. Walks up to her and says, excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction she says, oh, yes, I was, I was. You just ordered the exact same lunch as I did. He takes a deep breath and says, my name is George. I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. <laughs> she says, I'm Victoria. Hi. That's my best Victoria high voice. It's, a, it's humorous. It's humorous because it's so opposite of what any of us would ever try to do. And yet... Victoria, meaning George, at least according to the humor, sees something of glory in George. Right? We have glory. We have, each of you are made in the image of God. And, and we actually have something to offer this world and to each other, and we're glorious. But so often we're hiding behind all the stuff we would want to say, all the, the masks and, and the ways our flesh says, don't, don't, don't be real, don't show your inner self, right? And I want you to know, we've been talking through John, the goal of this message is not to be authentically you. The goal is to reflect the the authenticity of Christ. So we talked a few months ago about the moon reflecting the sun, right? Jesus is the only source of glory. He is the light. And what we do as Christians is either, as people I would say, is either we try to reflect our own light and it doesn't work and it fails George's experience, or we yield to Christ and his light reflects off of us, which brings forth beauty and fruit and glory in our lives and the lives around us, the flourishing. So his glory, Jesus' glory gives us a couple of things we're going to look at this morning as we think through this Palm Sunday message. The first one is it gives a love for true life. If you'll look at the scripture, um, I want us to go to the very end, if we can, Dan, or if you just want to, or Justin, you don't look like Dan anymore. You look very different. Sorry. In verse 23, Jesus says this to the question of the men that want to meet him. He says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. So that's, he's, this is not about just his death. This is about Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension and reign. Like he's saying it's time. For glory, for true life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls under the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. So I want you to hear the life-offering message of Jesus, fruitful life. In 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And what sounds negative at first, he says, whoever hates his life, that sounds negative, but he says, in this world who hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus is promising a flourishing of life. And I want you to know those verses really control all the verses we read from 12.1 through there. So we're going to back up in a moment, but I want you to understand that Easter, this week, the celebration, is tricky. Often we think, I either get really excited about you know, the, the Easter, you know, the spring growth, the promise of resurrection... But then there's this death to deal with. Or some people get so caught up in the mourning and the death, they forget that there's a resurrection to celebrate. And what I'm hoping we'll see this morning is both are critical for a flourishing life and to reflect that glory. And so true life is all through this passage. Um, Just verses 1 through 8, we're going to touch on them a few times. The story of Mary. is kind of a parable for the rest of this situation. Mary is with Jesus, and they're celebrating They're actually having a type of party, right? It's it's six days from the Passover. Uh, One historian, Josephus, has said, like, I think he marks the date that he's talking about 30 years later. But he said at that point, like, 2.7 million people would come into Jerusalem for the Passover. So here we are, say, 30 years before that. It's probably a lot of people in the millions. And And it's just a festive time. They're in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And this is that place where Lazarus had died and was resurrected by Jesus. And now they're having this meal. And I just want you to realize, even though we know what Mary does and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, it's a festive time. It's joy filled. Like there's Lazarus alive. If I told you, you know that person that checks you out every Tuesday when you go to the grocery store, they died. You'd be sad. But if I told you, turns out they were raised from the dead. You would go like, what? you would beeline it to that place and you would want to touch their body. Like you would be, you would never look at them the same, would you? This is a brother. A brother, a son, a a close friend, and he's alive. And this is a celebration. Jesus offers us a resurrected life. We move down into this, um, what really the point of Palm Sunday is this triumphal entry I just want to draw our attention to what we see um, where Jesus is coming in. He prepares his entrance on a cult. They're coming closer. And a lot of people come out of Jerusalem to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to read you some lines from D.A. Carson who talked about this just so we understand the historical setting. He says, the cry of Hosanna was originally... Uh, meant in the Hebrew, give salvation now. And it comes from Psalm 118:25. 25. Now, for those of you that were here a few weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 118, and we saw this idea of praise. Remember, I had, each, I had us like read it together. I had you do that awkward thing where you had to like say words out loud and rejoice. I want that to be the backdrop because that's the backdrop for Palm Sunday, In verse 25 of Psalm 18, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. Well, that scripture through the years became a rallying cry for the Messiah. It became a way for the people to to long for the national return of a king. Um, Palm branches, by the way, were used at a different point. They were used at the um, Feast of the Tabernacles, but over time it became used as part of um, kind of the whole celebration of the longing for the Messiah. And it says that at one point, in this longing for a Davidic king, Carson tells us that this became the kind of the symbol, these palm branches, these palm leaves, which would have been plentiful in Jerusalem and the surrounding area with the palm trees. So the people would grab these leaves and routinely say these words hosanna longing for the deliverance of their captivity that they were in they were longing for a savior right and if you remember psalm 18 it's all about salvation right the salvation of the king so this is a rejoicing time this is an excited time and then finally i want you to know as far as true life like we that we're living because of the resurrection because of the glory uh, it comes out in blessing people like blessing others, that's, that's what Psalm 18 is about, that's what this laying down palm branches is about, and my question is, is that what your life is about? Like, do you like to bless other people? So we went to a concert, the Ellie Holcomb, Drew Holcomb concert, it was my second time to go to a concert in that same place where I barely knew the famous people. We, were, we went to the Need to Breathe concert, I didn't know Need to Breathe. We went to the Drew Holcomb concert. I did know Ellie, and I'm sorry, Shane, I didn't know Drew. Like, I had listened to one Drew Holcomb song. I had set the goal to really listen to a lot of his music. But sitting there, pretty close, a little bit uncomfortably close, as you do in concerts, I just felt like these people are gifted. They have glory. And it was really neat afterwards to meet them, and they're just ordinary people. They know people we know. Like, they knew, I watched Shane talking to Drew and telling his story. And it's just, these are people. Why am I telling you that? We all know what it looks like to go to a concert and like have that feeling toward people, right? I was processing that and I've been processing that since then. We do this with athletes, we do this with famous people. But have you ever watched like reality TV and thought, I wanna know that person, right? Here's where it gets really strange. Have you ever watched PBS Independent Lens? Like, they'll cover the most ordinary person. Some filmmakers filming their aunt in her daily life. And you just sit there and you start watching. And you lean in. And they take you through her course of her day and her bingo group or whatever they're doing. And by the end, I'm like, I want to know her. Why? Because she has glory. You have glory. What I'm getting at is this. When we come to this passage, when we understand the things we're talking about this morning, about Jesus saying, he who loses his life will find it, that's a different paraphrase, we will begin to see the people in our world as glorious. And that's amazing. Like, we will enjoy our spouse. Lewis says somewhere that if you could see a person the way they actually are in the image of God, you'd be tempted to worship them. I'm not advocating for that. But what I am saying is, often we look at people, I'm bored with them. They don't please me anymore. I want someone else. My children are becoming down. You know, you just kinda, my parents are getting on my nerves. My roommate, they left their dishes out again. We just treat people this way. And I want you to know, true life is lived, and glory comes when we begin to love and interact with people because they're made in the image of God. So true life leads to this blessing of people it leads to uh, seeing this glory of Jesus played out in our midst. It leads to parties and, and fellowship and great times. But how do we get to that? We get to that through death. Isn't that good news? That's the next side. So the glory of God, we just talked about, leads to the love of life, true life. But his glory also leads us to have to face our own death. And that's what this passage really centers on, isn't it? Like, what do you make of Mary's actions? I mean, they're at, a, they're at a party. Like, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And I don't think you can find a single Bible verse that would say, when this happens, go find the perfume and, and wipe it on his feet with your hair. Like, that's not a thing. She wasn't following any, any rules. What do you make of her actions? It looks like a buzzkill. You would almost expect Jesus to say, Mary, Mary, not now. We're about a week away. You know, this is a good impulse. Just back off a little bit. After all, Martha has gone to all this work. Lazarus, as I've already said, is sitting at the table. The entire region is just overwhelmed with visitors and guests. People want to meet Lazarus. He's famous. You know, he's he's been raised from the dead. And yet here's Mary taking this this jar, and she she bathes his feet with it. Now, the value of that jar is 300 denarii, which, I mean, again, it's hard to do all the, it, it sounds like a year's wages, right? It's a very valuable piece of, uh, of um, just a, something they could sell, like Judas's. You could take this and sell it. What is she doing? What do you make of that? Let's go back to the end of the passage where Jesus explains. He says, truly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you see how the two go together? A seed is useless. I remember as a child, the first time I walked into like a garden shop and just seeing all the seeds in their little packages with my mom. And I was like, you mean this little package will turn into like that thing on the cover? I I still don't believe it because I'm not a good gardener. My wife believes it. I'm like, if I, how? how do, what do you do? And Jesus tells us, you bury it. It has to crack open, it has to break for that glory to come out. That principle runs all through life, doesn't it? Mary takes this jar, and Judas, unfortunately for the rest of us who know how, how evil he is, we kind of agree with him. Like, I mean, I wouldn't have stolen the money, but I could have thought of a lot of better uses for it, you know, maybe actually giving the money to the poor. And yet, if you think about it, that perfume is designed for exactly its purpose. Jesus tells us himself, right? He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It was, it was built for this. It was designed to do exactly what she's doing. So my question is, what keeps us from experiencing glory? And the answer is, we don't want to die. We don't want to go down so that others may come up, do we? So we fight and we resist. And then another picture in our passage, of course, is Jesus at the height of his fame with all these followers choosing to ride in on a colt, choosing a donkey to, again, show the way up, the way we're going to go forward, the way I'm going to carry out this mission of bringing you life is through humility, through peace. What do you make of that? Like, why do we struggle with that? I heard an illustration that is a little bit down. I'm going to just let you know. This is not going to be a laughter one. But it's not emotional. Just consider this like a science experiment. Can you do that with me? This is like a science experiment. A man, he's going to die at the end of this illustration, so just understand that, was on a boat, like a little raft, in a river in Maine. The water was cold. True story. And he goes, he thinks I can get over that dam. It's not that big. But he didn't realize when he went over it that there was a whirlpool. And so he, the boat, he came out of the raft, and he's caught up in this whirlpool. And what do you do And you're in a whirlpool? You fight. You fight to swim out. You do everything you can. He became exhausted, and the water was so cold, he, he began to froze. He actually died from freezing in the water. And there and were onlookers, and they wanted to help him, but they couldn't get in because of this whirlpool. And it all happened so fast. But what they said was, when he finally freezes and quits fighting, he went under. And it shot him up like 10 yards downstream where he popped up and he would have lived. It's kind of an interesting story, isn't it? You're not really sure emotionally what to do with that. But do you see the the implications of that? Had he resisted his natural impulses of flailing, he would have lived. And I think what I want you to hear me say is that's what we do. We flail. Like what we do in this life is we flail. We fight, we resist, and we wonder why it's not working. I mean, I just started brainstorming some things like, we all like to brag, like we boast. Some of us do it really well, there's the humble brag, there's the clear, I'm just gonna say it, I'm gonna brag. But you know what we all hate? People who brag, you know? Uh, Or how about, um, we relentlessly want our house to look clean. Right? It has to be perfect when the guests show up. But what do you hate when you show up to someone's house? A perfectly clean home. You're like, give me a little mess. I want to know that you're not perfect. Okay, how about competitiveness? Like, we all, like, I'm told often, Ryan, you're kind of competitive. I don't think that's a compliment. <laughs> like, competitiveness is something, when we do it, we like it, but when we see it in others, it's like, you notice you're kind of competitive? But we say it with a smile, you know. What are some other things? Um, how about I want to learn everything? I need to know everything I can. I want to be relevant in your conversation. You know, we hate know-it-alls, right? There's just, if you go down the list of what we do to try to impress people, it's the very thing we hate about people. Now, don't hate people because that goes against point number one. But the point is this. What would it look like? What does it cost you to lay down your glory? What does it cost you in relationship to simply say, I want to reflect the glory of Jesus? Obviously, in our passage, we're talking about people dying, his own disciples, all but John would be martyred, um, persecution's coming. Probably, again, we would know that this chur- the church in general will face persecution. But it's not just those violent moments of persecution. It's the daily grind of needing to go be less Right, so that Jesus is more. And that's exactly what we find in Mary. She takes this jar, and without anybody telling her what to do, she breaks it open, and she begins to bless him and touch his feet. Like, you're not supposed to do that. And we're gonna talk more about that in a few minutes, but I just want you to hear that there's a sense in which she had to die to values of money, or what the people in the room thought of her, Even Judas and probably the other disciples, he probably became their spokesman. She had to sort of face their scorn. Are you willing to do that for glory for Jesus? So those are our two extremes, okay? We have on one extreme, the glory of God, of glory of Jesus shines through you and brings true life, but it comes by you facing and being willing to die. Die to the impulses, die to the ways you cover yourself, to die to anything that's not of Jesus, right? But I want to I want to end with this kind of middle point. I think there's a hinge between these two behaviors. These two behaviors go together, right? And the middle hinge, what the glory of, of Jesus does is it brings us into a place of adoring Him. We don't talk enough about this. Often we can present the gospel like a series of, if you could just follow these techniques, but what's so beautiful about this passage is Jesus is to be adored. Like, do you adore him? I think oftentimes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to all of us, but men, I'm gonna just talk about masculinity, we struggle with that. Like we really do. In fact, it's you watch, you know, Saving Private Ryan and these soldiers, and it's a true story on the beach like getting shot and dying what are they doing are they crying out for dad who are they crying out for mom mother right jesus says he would long to to gather Jerusalem like a mother hen not a rooster a hen There's mothering, there's beautiful in the feminine. Isaiah constantly compares God to being mothering and there's a place in Isaiah 49 when he says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In our passage, fear not daughters of Zion, a common term, daughter of Zion, a common term for Israel, for those who are the offspring of God. Why am I saying that? He uses Mary, or rather Mary is the example of adoration of Jesus. Here you have a room full of people not sure what to do and Mary, I, I, I wish we could be there and be a fly on the wall and just watch her begin to process how can I show Jesus that I love him? How can I prove, and not just prove, but how can I adore him? And she takes the perfume and she takes down her hair. And she goes to the dirtiest place on anybody, their feet. It's scandalous. And she washes his feet with her hair. It's astounding. As I was meditating on that, I've taught John 13 so many times. We're going to look at it on Thursday. There's a room full of men. And there's nobody there to wash their feet. Who's the only one that can do it? Jesus. Why? Because they're all sinful. None of these men are willing to die to self. But what I've never thought about was just six days before, they watched Mary wash Jesus' feet. Why can't they go, oh, I get it, humility, like Mary. Am I here to bash men? I'm one of them. I'm a man. I love men. Love you men. It's not men or women. The point is God has made different characteristics within us all, and I think for us to begin to adore Jesus, maybe we can press into Mary and go, can I love Jesus like this? Is she beautiful? You know, we know of the parable of the pearl of great price, excuse me, is he beautiful? Can we come to Jesus and and just want to be near him? What would that even look like? What would it look like for you to adore Jesus this Easter? it would start, let me tell you some things that would have to happen. You'd have to die to things you adore and you'd have to turn and begin praising him like our Psalm 118 exercise and, and giving him glory. But the key is repentance is the center of that. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What do you adore? Like what do you love? What gets you moving? What do you want to move toward? What would you like to write a poem about? Like we are all built to adore and have adoration for Jesus, but we aim it so often in other things. And what this, I think what we can do in this passage is learn to adore him. You have to name the things you adore. I gave you these similar points recently. I think we have to confess and repent. Lord, forgive me. I don't feel that way about you. Can you do that? As we move toward Easter, can you confess I love other things more than you, Jesus, because I don't trust you. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I live out these words at the end of John 12, of our passage, John 12, 26, um, 23 to 26, I'm afraid I will lose my life. I'm afraid I'll lose my life and that I won't really gain eternal life. Can you confess that? Can you begin to name the ways you're terrified that if you don't, do all those things you do to brag, to, to look your best, to act your best, to have your best foot forward in life. If you just become a reflection of Jesus, are you, can you be honest that you're afraid you'll lose him and lose everything? Because if you can pass through that, through the power of the Lord, by giving him glory, Jesus, you will begin to reflect his glory without even meaning to. And people will be drawn to you and you'll be drawn to them. And the church will become beautiful. I would recommend also as an application, read Psalm 118, go back through it. Praise Jesus. Praise God. Read the scriptures of praise and begin to act on it even before you feel like it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your son. We don't understand. I feel so often like the disciples who just are sort of lost sometimes watching these things take place. And here we are celebrating the passion of Jesus, the final week of his life on earth before his death and resurrection and ascension. And Lord, it's tempting to just go through the motions, maybe show up at a worship service. My prayer for my brothers and sisters is that beginning this morning, we would say we want to adore you, Jesus that we would ask your Holy Spirit to come open our eyes to how beautiful you really are, that we would believe we would flourish if we did so. Will you guide us down that path, Father? If there are those this morning that do not believe, I pray even this morning they would see you freshly and believe you rose again from the dead, that you are true life, and that all the things we do to try to find life really resemble more what Judas was saying, and not what you say. Let us act like Mary. Let us act like the people who came out and laid the palm branches down and sang your praises. Let us act like the Greek brothers who wanted to meet with you for your glory. Amen.